what's the picture of Jesus that you have in your head? Like if I were to tell you right now, hey, I want you to picture Jesus, what image pops into your mind? We were talking about this idea with our students this week, and uh, there was a couple of pictures that I shared. One picture that, that pops into my mind when I think Jesus is this picture right here. Um, this is a picture of Jesus knocking on a door, but he's knocking on the door of your heart, okay? This is a picture that was in, I've seen in a lot of churches. Uh, I've seen it in the church that I kind of spent time in growing up. I think my grandparents may have had this picture somewhere too. Um, but to me, this is like, it's just like, oh, it's sentimental Jesus. He's He's knocking on your heart. Will you let him in? Maybe you have this picture of Jesus, or maybe you thought of this one. All right, this is like the glowing, flowing Jesus, because his, he's got this glow to him. His, he's glowing. His hair is flowing. He's got this perfect Caucasian skin, because it's totally what Jesus looked like. And he's looking kind of like stoically. He's, he's loving, and yet stern, and yet serious, staring off into the distance. And it's just this kind of, I don't know, this unrealistic, cleaned up version of Jesus, or uh, maybe you have like a childish picture of Jesus, and so maybe that—that's what this represents, right? It's—it's it's the little children coming to Jesus because Jesus loves the children. All the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. And so there's a there's an association with a childhood kind of faith or a nostalgia when you think of Jesus. I, I don't I don't know what it is that, that you think of, but here's the one thing that all of those pictures have in common, and I think most of our our thoughts and images and literal pictures of Jesus, the, 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 most of them have this one thing in common, and I would say that it's this, that they all feel really, really safe, right? They feel safe. They feel comfortable. They're not threatening. In fact, there's almost like a, it's like a big warm blanket. It's like, oh, that's a safe, loving picture of Jesus. And that's okay, I guess, but there's more to Jesus than that. You see, the reality is, is he's not safe, man. He, he does, is not just like comfortable, safe, soothing all the time, like, like, Jesus, he, he's not safe and soft and comfortable. He, he gets in our business. Like, he, he confronts us with things. He challenges us with things. He, he challenges the status quo, and he rocks the boat. And that's both true for, for us as individuals, for you and for me. Like, there's things in my life that he's like, I'm going to come and push back against that. But that's also true in terms of uh, structural things and societal things and corporate kind of group things, that there's whole ways of the way that the world works. And he's like, mm -mm, I'm going to come and push back against that. And, and the account that we're going to look at together in the next few minutes, uh, it really brings that idea front and center. And so we've been in the process of working through the gospel of John, right? Uh, and we're actually going to take a break from that here in a few weeks if you're tracking along with this real time. And we're going to do some other things and we'll come back to the gospel of John and pick back up later in the year. But the gospel of John, one of four accounts about the life of Jesus. There's, there's four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that we call gospels that present the life of Jesus. Um, uh, they, they each kind of present it from a different perspective or with a different goal in mind. Uh, and, and John is one of these people, and he's an eyewitness to the events of the life of Jesus. He is, uh, he, he's one of his disciples, one of his closest followers, really one of his closest friends and people that he's closest to on the planet. And so John has this firsthand account of what happens in the life of Jesus, and he brings that account to us. Although he does it in a very unique way, a very big picture, cosmic um, kind of way, like the way we're kind of saying it, is John doesn't just want us to know uh, what happened, but what's the thing behind the thing? Why does it happen? What does it all mean? And so that's what we've been doing. And today we're looking at this very famous account that's uh, sometimes and usually referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple or Jesus clearing the temple courts. Uh, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. 
Um, if you've ever heard someone kind of use this expression of like, well, you know, Jesus made a whip, okay? He flipped over tables. This is the account that people are referring to, although usually, not, not always, but I would say most of the time, when people say something like that, it's often done in a defensive posture uh, as using Jesus making a whip and flipping over tables to justify some of their uh, not-so-Christ-like behavior of maybe being a jerk or being really harsh with people. Uh, and the reason we do that is because we many times misunderstand or misapply what Jesus is actually doing here. So we're going to look at that together. John chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 13. Here's what we read, that the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John is setting the stage. He's setting the scene for us. He's like, first thing you need to know, it's the Passover. And so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. The Passover, the Jewish Passover, this was like the defining celebration and moment to the Jewish people. Um, it was this reminder and this celebration and this meal and week and celebration of remembrance for how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and so this was a massive deal to the Jewish people. And at this time in history, there are Jewish people scattered all over the known world. In Old Testament times, there was this thing called the exile where uh, the nation of Israel was, was conquered, defeated, and, and like Jewish people were scattered everywhere. And even after they were allowed to come back from exile, many of the Jewish people stayed scattered in different areas around the world. But at Passover, many would make this pilgrimage journey back to Jerusalem to celebrate, to come to the temple and to, to go through the, the, the whole celebration. And so um, just the, the population of Jerusalem would swell like crazy. Uh, scholars have a hard time putting exactly like how many people what, like lived in the city of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. Um, but one, it seems like the most um, common or most popular estimate is somewhere around 40,000 people lived in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. At Passover, though, that would swell to well above 200,000 people. The population would increase by five times. I mean, can you just imagine for a moment, wherever you live, all of a sudden there's five times as many people. And so, like, where, where I'm at, where we're, where we're located as a church, you know, small town between three and 4,000 people, can you imagine there being 20,000, going from three or 4,000 to, like, 20,000 people? It would be insane. There would be people everywhere. All the restaurants, all the, uh, would be full. Houses would be full. Inns and hotels. Like, everything would just be packed. There would be bustling going on, and especially at the temple, right? Because that's what people were there. They're there for this Jewish celebration. They're going to the temple. And so the scene is set. Jesus is going in. It's not just like kind of a slow, it's not a slow business day. You know, it's not like there's not many people to, to, to witness what he's about to do. No, like it was the opposite. People are everywhere about to see what he's going to do. So he, he goes up to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. And in the temple, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. This ends up being what sets Jesus off. There's people selling animals, there's people changing money. Let me talk about kind of why that was for a second. So um, in the Old Covenant, uh, on, under the law, what we would find in the Old Testament of the Bible, it's the Jewish scriptures, that people were supposed to bring an unblemished uh, animal and offering a sacrifice to the temple. But you've got these people traveling from you know, super, super far distances because they're scattered all over the world. And so instead of having to bring an animal with them on that really, really long journey, they would just bring some money with them and buy an animal when 
uh, when they got there. You know, it was, it's kind of thought that at one time those animal merchants selling all these animals had like little stations and stalls across this area called the Kidron Valley. They were on the slope of the Mount of Olives. So basically there were animals for sale on the way to the temple. But eventually it got to the point where it was just inside the temple, selling animals. I mean, can you imagine the commotion and the, the, the distraction? There's animals, there's noise, there's smell, there's, there's people like yelling out, like, I'll give you this much. No, I want this much. I mean, it's just, it is the scene of, of a market, right? And so that's what's going on so people can buy animals. But more than that, there's also another layer in which there's not just animals being sold, but there's people who are being cheated, people who are being ripped off. The, the, the price on these animals would be raised like crazy. Uh, one scholar uh, noted that it, it would have been as much as 20 times as expensive as it normally would be to buy one of these animals, like for a dove. So <laughs> I read this thing. It was like, you know, like the, the cost for a dove in the temple was 20 times street value. And I'm like, never did I think I would be talking about the street value of a dove, but here I am, right? So, so a 20 times like, in, like inflation mark on what you would normally pay for a dove because supply and demand, baby, you got to have a sacrifice. So here you go, 20 times as much. Um, then you would have some more local people, okay, who would be bringing animals themselves to the temple, and they would try to rip them off as well. Some of these animal sellers would see maybe an animal that you brought and be like, hey, 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 I want to help you out. I want to make sure that, you know, you give a proper sacrifice. And, you know, this sacrifice is supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be unblemished. And I see, you know, your little, your sheep there, it's got a little, it's got a little dark spot or uh, it's kind of got a limp. And, and we, don't, we don't want you to give an improper sacrifice. So let, 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 me, let me help you. And, and I'll sell you one of my sheep because they're perfect. You trade your kind of messed up sheep in and give me a little bit more money along with that, and then I'll give you this perfect sheep, right? So like, try, like here, here you go, we're doing that. And then they would take that so-called imperfect sheep that they just, you know, sold somebody else, you know, cheated somebody else out of, and they would turn around and sell it, right? So it's just this whole scheme of people being ripped off. And that also flowed into the, the, um, the job of the money changers. Again, as people are coming from all these different areas, uh, there was not just one single currency. There was a whole bunch of local currencies. As people came to the temple, they had to pay this temple tax, but the temple tax could only be paid in one specific currency. And so you came and you brought whatever local currency you had, and you had to do an exchange. Just like if we travel abroad you know, today, a lot of times you've got to do an exchange, and there's an exchange rate. So that was happening but the money changers are charging commission for that. As much as, as, as one scholar said, 12 and a half times as much, uh, or 12.5% um, uh, commission. So like 12 cents on the dollar, okay? Like, so there, there's just, there's noise, there's commotion, there's people being taken advantage of, uh, and, and Jesus, he is, he's not having it. So here's what happens. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins, and he overturned the tables. He, he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So that, that, that last part is a reference to uh, one of the Psalms. Uh, the, the, the disciples are kind of putting these events together. Oh, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is clean, cleansing and cleaning out the temple. But like it says that he made a whip. Like he, he, he makes a, a whip. And I want, I want us to understand, I want us to settle into this for a moment. Like Jesus, this, is, this takes time. 
um, they weren't allowed to have weapons in the temple, okay? So there wasn't just like weapons laying around. There wasn't just a whip laying around. Like, and so he has to fashion together a whip out of whatever, some, some rope, some animal hair. And if you just picture this image, he's just sitting in the corner, kind of fashioning this whip together, taking in the scene. But understand that this is calculated, uh, this is not Jesus flying off the handle, just reacting in fury to something. He is responding to something. He is passionate, yes. There is a sense of anger, but it is a, a righteous anger. He's not angry just for the sake of anger. He's, like, he's heartbroken and angry over uh, how people are being mistreated, how, how God is being dishonored. Like He is passionate. He, there's a sense of righteous anger, but he is not violent, cruel, or hateful. And sometimes that is how we paint this image, that we use this and this, this account almost as a justification to be jerks to people, right? Like uh, we, we use this as a justification to be hateful or angry or violent or cruel in the name of God and say, well, you know, Jesus made a whip and he turned over tables, uh, but that is not what's being communicated, like that, 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 ain't, that does not match up with the character of Jesus that we see anywhere else. There's actually no evidence in this text that Jesus whipped people. Like that is an inference that people make. Like, well, he made a whip, therefore he must be beating people. But it does not say that Jesus whipped people. There's no evidence for that in the text. And not only is there not evidence for that in the text, um, historically it's highly unlikely. He, he could not have done something like that that would have created a violent uproar. If Jesus goes around and starts whipping people, there's going to be a riot that takes place in the temple courts. Overlooking the temple courts was the Roman fortress of Antonia, and there were Roman soldiers stationed there. And the reason they were stationed there, because it's this massive public gathering place, they were there for any kind of riots or rebellion or anything that, that broke out, that they would put an end to it quickly, because Rome don't mess around with that kind of stuff. Uh, and so if Jesus were just going around beating and whipping people, you can bet that these legions of soldiers would have come down and put an end to it. And he's not just going around whipping people, beating people. He's driving them out of the temple in a very kind of cool and calculated way, but, but he's communicating something significant. He displays a righteous anger, not just a flying off the handle. This is not flying off the handle in the name of God. This is a display of righteous anger, a, heart, a, a righteous anger that's really driven by just passion and zeal, as the, the psalm he quotes, and, and heartbreak for, for how God is being dishonored and people are being mistreated. You know, it's interesting in the other gospel accounts, they add uh, something that Jesus says after he drives them out. I want to look at that real quick. Let's look at uh, Mark's account of this, uh, of this event. Mark eleven seventeen. Jesus says, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of thieves? My house, this temple is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. He's quoting from um, Isaiah 56, 7. There was this idea that the, the temple was supposed to be a place where everyone could come to encounter the living God, where people from all nations, not just the Jewish people, where those who were curious could come and could discover, where those who had converted to Judaism, even though they weren't ethnically Jewish, where they could come and worship. It was supposed to be a place for everyone, but it had lost that functioning and had become, as Jesus <clears throat> says here, a den of thieves. 
Now, this is really significant when we understand like how the temple was set up at the time of Jesus. There were like these different layers in terms of, uh, of like how the temple was arranged and, and who could go into the different areas. So I'm going to throw a picture up here on the screen. I don't know if you'll be able to see it or not, but you'll get the general idea where you can see that it's, it's kind of sectioned off into different areas. Let me just highlight a few of them. The innermost area, this is the Holy of Holies. That's where like the presence of God was, the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. Um, outside of that, you have this next area, which is uh, known as the court of the priests. So only the, the, the priests of Israel could go in there. A little bit further, the next layer out is what is the, the, the court of Israel or the court of Jewish men. Um, and so only Jewish men were allowed in that part. Uh, a little bit further out than that, you have what's called the court of, of the women. So this is a little further out. Jewish women were allowed in there. And, and they weren't allowed to go any further. And so like increasingly, you, got, you can go this far and no further. So Jewish women can go this far and no further. The men can go this far and no further. The priests can go this far and no further. And then only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. But kind of like the outer, uh, the outer courtyard, the outer area, the last group of people is this big area on the outside right here in this huge space here. And it's called the court of the Gentiles. This is the space where non-Jewish people could come to the temple where they could maybe have an encounter with the living God. This is the place where non, like, like people who were searching, people who had converted to Judaism but weren't ethnically Jewish, like that's the place, this green area here is where they could go and be like, okay, I'm coming to, 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 to discover, to be curious, to ask questions, to connect to the, the, this living God, the God of the Jews. And wouldn't you know it, <clears throat> Wouldn't you know it, the place where the marketplace is set up, where there's animals being sold, where there's all this commotion, where people are being taken advantage of, where people are being uh, ripped off, is in the court of the Gentiles. That there's so much corruption and there's so much commotion that there is no room for the outsiders. The space that was intended for those to connect with, with God has been done away with. The space for the outsiders to connect with God had been done away with so they could, 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 could cater to the, the religious needs of those who are already insiders. But let's go a little bit further, actually, because I found this really interesting in my research this week. The word for thieves, um, thieves or robbers, as it was translated there, you've turned it into a den of thieves, <clears throat> is often translated as criminal or insurrectionist in other areas. And so one New Testament scholar, uh, I was reading, Greg, uh, Craig Bloomberg says this, that den of robbers... It does not necessarily mean that all the merchants sold their goods at inflated prices, but it does suggest, at least, that Jesus considered many of them generally corrupt. Now, here's what's really interesting. And if robbers, the Greek word listei, is given the meaning it most probably has of insurrectionist, then Jesus may be accusing the leaders of having converted the temple into a nationalist stronghold. And so now, like, here, here's this, this unholy concoction that's coming together in the temple of just distraction from being distracted, of actually focusing on God. There's animals everywhere. There's corruption. There's taking advantage of people. And now there's a political agenda involved in all of this as well. And it's like the temple and the leaders, like, this is supposed to be a place about connecting people to God, right? This is supposed to be a place where people have an encounter with God, and you're focused on, on this nationalism. You're focused, like, you have a political agenda. You have so lost sight of what is most important. And let me just pull out of the context of first century temple talk and, and talk for a minute about our world and our day 
and the church specifically. Now, the church and the temple, they are not the same thing. Temple was old covenant. Old covenant is done away with. Jesus has done something new. We have a different way of relating now. There's nothing holy about this, like the buildings that we meet in. Like God is a mobile God, okay? But there are some similarities that, that I see here to what's going on in the church. The temple is dealing with corrupt, like corruption and abuse of power and taking advantage of people. Like We see this all over the place. I mean, there's been story after story after story after story of church abuse and church scandal and pastor scandal and people being hurt and people being taken advantage of and abuse of power. We talk about the distractions that are there in the temple courtyard of the animals and, and it's put like distractions that the people who hurt the most are those who are on the outside. And man, the church is full of religious distractions. There are so many things that, that, that we insiders, those of us who are Christians, that we get all worked up about, and we got to serve all of my needs and cater to my needs, things that become a distraction. Meanwhile, those who are, who are on the outside, who are maybe curious, who are maybe searching, it pushes them out. And then let's talk about a political agenda. And the, the church in our day is becoming increasingly political simply because Honestly, culture is becoming increasingly political. Like everything is seen through the eyes of politics. And instead of the church standing and saying, that's how the world works, that's not how we work, the church is going right along with it. Like over and over, like this divide is happening that on one side you have people that are like the kind of conservative, fundamentalist Christians that are all about, like, we got to take our nation back and we won't stand for this and we're going to be angry about it. And it's like, God and country, baby, God and country. And that's bullcrap, man. Like, Jesus ain't about that. But then there's this, this counter movement that's, that's arising where instead of, like, coming and refocusing on Jesus and the gospel, we've taken an unhealthy swing to the other extreme and, and moving towards, a no, the answer to this, this God and country conservative fundamentalist Christianity is more of a progressive Christianity. Where, where now all of a sudden, like, just there's, there's nothing redeemable, nothing is good about like, American Christianity or evangelicalism. It's all bad. It all has to be torn down. It's all built on racism. It's all built on the patriarchy, and it all must go down. I don't even know if we can trust the Bible. I don't know if we can, like, that's just the shift towards progressivism in the church. And by, honestly, that's bullcrap too. Like, there's no room for any of that in the church, we're losing sight of the gospel on both sides of this extreme. We're viewing the gospel through the lens of our politics instead of viewing politics through the lens of the gospel. We have failed to keep the main thing the main thing. There's so many similarities to what Jesus is confronting in the temple, to what needs to be confronted in the church. The temple was supposed to be a place where all people could go to encounter the living God. And it had become a place of personal gain, a place of corruption, a place of taking advantage of people, a place of political agendas. And you know who suffers the most in that equation? It's not the religious people. Because the religious people, man, they can, they can still go into these other, other layers of the temple and they can still worship, they can still do their thing. No, the people who suffer the most where all of this is taking place is those on the outside. It's those who are curious. It's those who are searching. The temple had actually become the very antithesis of what Jesus said what the greatest commandment was. When he was asked what was the greatest commandment, he said, it says, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That the first thing you got to do is have a devotion and a commitment to God. And out of that devotion and that love for God will flow a love for other people. And those two things can't be separated. Love God and love people. The temple system had become not love God and love people. It had become use God and abuse people. 
use God and abuse people for my own personal gain. And so, man, Jesus, he has this righteous anger that builds up, not hatred, not violence, not cruelty. He's not out to get his enemies. He's not out to get the people who are doing this. You know how I know that? Because uh, in just a, a few short days, he's going to go and die for these people in the order of things. Like, like, like shortly after this, he will go to a cross and cry out to the very people who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so it's not that. It's not hatred. It's not a hatred of his enemies. He loves his enemies, but he's passionate. He hates seeing God dishonored. He hates seeing people abused. And so he has this righteous anger. He flips the tables. He drives the people out. He's like, hey, this is supposed to be a place where people connect to God. You've turned it into robbery and corruption and politics. I'm done with it. And this causes quite a commotion. And so he gets a response from the Jewish people, most likely the Jewish, the temple leaders, and they ask him this question. They reply, what sign will you show us for doing these things? So they, they weren't um, ignorant to what Jesus was doing. They understood what he was doing. They understood what he was claiming. They were familiar with the scriptures. And so there, there are things that pointed to this, this cleansing of the temple, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the merchants being driven out. And so they, they, they're tracking along with what he's saying and communicating. And basically they're, 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 they're saying, okay, prove it. Like you're doing these things. You're doing these kind of Messiah-ish things. Prove it. What sign will you do? And he replies by saying, destroy this temple. I'm going to destroy it. And then I'll raise it up in three days. And therefore, the, the Jews said to him, this temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days? As I was like, this guy's a joke. Destroy it, build it in three days. It's taken 46 years to build this temple. It actually took longer than that. It wasn't even finished yet at this point. There were still some finishing touches to be done. This particular temple, there were different iterations of the temple, but this one wouldn't be fully completed until the year 63 AD. And then it would only stand for seven years because in, in 70 AD, the Romans would come in and destroy it. The Roman legions would de descend upon the city of Jerusalem uh, and destroy the temple, burn it to the ground, throw every last stone off, fulfilling things that Jesus said. And it would never be built again. There's still no temple, thus bringing an end to ancient Judaism. There's no way this thing is massive. This is huge. It's take, taken decades to build. You're going to destroy it and build it in three days? And now John, who's bringing us this account, he, he pulls out of the narrative and adds his commentary to it. And this is what John says. John says that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So that when he was raised, there's that idea again, I'm going I'm to destroy this temple and raise it in three days. And when Jesus was raised, and actually the, the word for resurrection, raised, raised, resurrection, they all hold the same root word. So that when he, when Jesus was raised from the dead, when the resurrection occurred, his disciples remembered that he had said this, that he's going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. They remembered that. And they believed the scripture. And they believed the statement that Jesus had made. You see, the, the resurrection ended up changing everything. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything for the world, but for, for these disciples. Man, none of, you know, none of the disciples, at the time that Jesus is driving the people out of the temple and he's saying the things he's saying, none of them really understood what he meant. Like They're like, okay, that's cool, I guess, but we have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, none of the disciples, none of the closest followers of Jesus believed anything about him believed anything that they had once hoped would be true once he died. Like they had hoped that he was the Messiah. They had hoped like by the signs and the miracles, they put their hope in him and their trust in him and they hoped it was true. But at the point of his crucifixion, they lost all of that hope. 
Everything that he did that seemed so, that Jesus did that seemed so amazing, that seemed like it was pointing to the fact that he was the one, that was teaching the fact that he was the one, it all went out the window. But then the resurrection gave them a new perspective. The resurrection changed, the resurrection caused them to go back every, over everything they experienced over the past three years with Jesus and go, oh, that's what this meant, and that's what this was about, and that's what he was doing, and he really was the one we were waiting for. The resurrection changed everything, and John, as he's writing this, man, he writes on the other side of the resurrection. He has this resurrection perspective now to go, I see what he was doing. And so John kind of pulls out of this account and says, listen, all of the temple talk Right? All of the condemning the temple and driving them out of the temple and the house of prayer and den of thieves and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy this temple and the whole system and everything about it. I'm going to raise up something else in three days. Like, I'm going to bring the temple to an end of its function. Like he, John, John is telling us all of that was pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was pointing to his death on the cross for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of the world, to, to throw open the doors to relationship with God, his resurrection proving who he was, defeating death, bringing this resurrection life into creation. He's like, that's what this is all about. That this is another account, another telling of this idea that the old way of connecting to God was passing away and that there was a new way that was being established in Christ. One author put it this way. He said the temple was where God dwelled. It was where the people came to worship. It was where the sacrifice for sin was paid. It was where the priesthood interceded for the people before God. And all of this now takes place in Jesus. Through him, we have a new covenant with God. His death and resurrection have completely changed how we worship and how sacrifice would be understood. You see, there's a new temple There's there's a new place that is the connection point to God. There's a new way to relationship with God. And that new place to connect to God and that new way to relationship with God, it actually isn't a place at all. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. That through his death and through his resurrection, we have relationship with God. We connect to God. We have life in God. And it's not a system and a structure. It's incredibly personal where you can know and connect to God and have the life that he offers. And so there's this beautiful picture of the old way passing away and the new thing coming, that Jesus was doing something new and unleashing something new in the world. And even though there's a new thing here and a new way connecting to God, a lot of the same temptations still exist. A lot of the same temptations still exist as they existed with the temple and at the time of Jesus. That there is a temptation to bring all the other crap that gets in the way of connecting to Jesus and to bring all that stuff with us and to bring the distractions and to bring the abuse and to bring the power, to bring the politics. Like everything we saw in that account, even though there's a new way of connecting to God through Jesus and it's beautiful and it's personal, like there's something in us that still wants to bring all that other junk along with us. And so as we kind of close out, um, let, me just, let me just draw out two points of application for us. Um, some things to focus on and to, to, to really to do collectively, like as a group of people, as a church, uh, and also individually. So listen, like collectively, as a church, I want us to just remember and to know and to focus, like we are committed to this idea. Like that, that we are not, we're not going to bring all that other crap in with us. We're not going to put up barriers. We're not going to set up a marketplace in the, the courtyard of the Gentiles so that those who are outside can't come in. And when I say we, I mean all of us. Like, we are connected and we are committed to doing this. 
Because it's not just me who's up here because I got a microphone on my face. Like it takes all of us. It takes you on the other side of the screen. It takes those of us that gather physically in person. It takes those of us who call Hope Community home to be the kind of people that say, we will not allow this to happen here. We're committed to keeping the main thing the main thing. It's about Jesus. It's about his gospel. We're not going to get lost in the weeds of politics. We're not going to get lost in the weeds of the culture war crap. We will, we'll be honest, we'll speak truth, but we'll do it in love. We'll have tough conversations, but the goal, the end is always to point people to Jesus. We're not in it for personal gain. We're not looking to work the church system for our own personal benefit. What we want to do is facilitate people connecting to God. That's why we're here. So we're committed to not putting up barriers to doing that. We're, creating, we're committed to create, not creating systems that benefit those who are on the inside at the expense of those who are on the outside. Because we want to see lives changed. We want to see people set free from sin. We want to see people have hope. We want to see uh, people find healing. We want, to, we want to see marriages healed and thriving. We want to see healthy kids. We want to see addictions broken. And we recognize that Jesus ultimately is the one who does that. But he uses his church to do it. So we're going to be about all about pointing people to Jesus and removing those barriers. Listen, if you're watching this real time, this is the perfect time to do this. And we're coming up on the Easter season. We're going to be celebrating that resurrection of Jesus that changed everything. And so let's be a part of clearing out those barriers. Let's be a part of inviting people. If Hope Community is your home, don't come to Easter by yourself. Invite people to our Easter service. Pray for them. Be praying for them from now until then that God would do something in their life, that you would bring them, that they would hear something, and that Jesus would move in their lives. So collectively, that's what we're doing. We're bringing people. We're inviting people. We're talking to people. We're, in, we're removing the barriers. We're making sure we don't get distracted into the weeds on all the things that don't matter because we are about connecting people to Jesus. Now let me talk to us as individuals and draw some application from this account. As individuals... There's some stuff in your life and in my life um, that Jesus needs to drive out, right? Like there are some things that, 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 just, that he just needs to get out of us. For some of you, that's a sin issue. There's just something that's like, I'm struggling with the sin. It's hurting me. It's hurting those around me. And, and I, it, it needs to go. It just needs to go. It's pride. It's lust. It's anger. Whatever it is. For some of you, maybe it's not that, but it's just like a distraction. They're like, he just needs to drive the distractions out of your life. It's all the animals making a noise in the temple. It's just distracting people from connecting to God. And so there's things in your life, you know what? This is distracting me from being who I am supposed to be. It's distracting me from connecting to God, and it needs to go. Maybe it's your use of technology. It's your use of social media. It's, uh, it's whatever, whatever distracts you, and it's like, I know I spend too much time doing this, and I know if I didn't do this as much... I'd be a better person, I'd know God better, I'd be a better husband or a dad or a mom or a, a friend or a coworker or a single person or a student or an older person. Like, I know there is something distracting me from being what God wants me to be and connecting to him. And Jesus wants to drive that out. For some of you, it's just driving out some excuses because it's like, I've, I've, you know, I, I, I've identified the sin issue or the distraction issue or whatever it is, but I've got excuses for why I can't or why I won't or why it'll never and Jesus wants to come along and drive that out. And listen, it's not always going to be pleasant, okay? Because he's going to get up in your life with his metaphorical whip, okay? He's going to drive some stuff out. And it's not pleasant, but let me reassure you that he's not going to harm you. He's not going to damage you. He, he, he's, he's not going to hurt you. Like, he's going to make you uncomfortable, 
But being uncomfortable is not the same thing as being harmed. There's this, this famous line, it's a beautiful line, and uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure it's Lucy is asking someone about Aslan, like, is, is he safe? And Aslan is like the Christ character in the book. He says, Are you, is, is he safe? And the response is, well, of course he's not safe, but he's good. Right? And that's the picture of Jesus. Is it safe? You know, well, no, he's not safe. Like, he wants to do some stuff in your life. There's some things that he needs to confront. And of course, it's not safe, but he is good. You can trust that he loves you. And because he loves you, he's not willing to leave you where you are. And so as individuals, what are those things that we need to let him drive out and get out of our lives? And then how are you going to posture yourself to do that? Because it is Jesus that will ultimately do it. You can't force those things out. You need his power. You need his work in your life. But we can put ourselves in a position where that can happen through confession and accountability to people. Who, who, who are you talking to about your junk? Who in your faith community are you talking to about what's going on in your life? Who are you accountable to? Who, who has the ability to call you on your junk? We, we, we posture ourselves for Jesus to get that stuff out and we set up boundaries, boundaries within relationships, boundaries within uh, um, technology use, bound, whatever the boundaries are. Like, I, like, here's where I draw the line. We set ourselves up for Jesus to drive that stuff out when we gather corporately to worship. Like, you need, we need each other. We need the church. We need to hear God's word spoken over us. We need to pray together. We need to worship together. You set yourself up when you engage in private disciplines. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing those things. So are you posturing yourself to be in that position to say, okay, Jesus, I'm putting myself in this position. Will you drive this stuff out of me? And it's uncomfortable. It is. But can you imagine what it would be like when that stuff is gone? Can you imagine your life whenever that sin that you're struggling with is gone, when those distractions are gone, when those excuses are gone, when you're actually stepping in and living the life that God has for you, how different that would look? Can you picture five years from now, a year from now, whatever, six months from now, and you're like, you know what? I'm picturing my life when I'm not struggling with that sin anymore, when I'm not so distracted anymore, when I've removed the excuses, and how much different, how much better will my life look and my relationships look and my my mental health look? Like, Like, oh my goodness, I want that. And so, yeah, there's some uncomfortability of Jesus coming in and driving stuff out on the front end. But on the back end, oh, gosh, it's beautiful. It's life-giving. Can you imagine collectively being a part of a church and a group of people that clears away and keeps the stuff away that doesn't matter, a place where people can have an encounter with Jesus, where he brings forgiveness and freedom and healing and hope into their lives? Can you imagine what would happen in our community as we lean in and commit to being that kind of a place? Can you imagine what would happen in the lives of your friends and your families and your neighbors as we lean in and commit to being that kind of a place that says, okay, whatever, Jesus as individuals and Jesus as a group, as a collective, as a church, get the stuff out of us that needs to be out. We want to be all about you. We want to find life in you. We want others to do the same.